Hello and welcome to Employment Law Matters. This is season six, episode one, and it's the 28th of March 2023. I'm barrister Daniel Barnett, a member of Outer Temple Chambers, presenter of the Legal Hour on LBC Radio and founder of the HR Inner Circle, the UK's leading membership organisation for smart, ambitious HR professionals. In season six, we're going to do something differently. Until this season, all these podcast episodes have involved me speaking with someone who's an expert in an aspect of employment law. But for this and the rest of the 12 podcasts in this season, I'm picking my favourite episodes from the series of 30 employment webinars I ran in 2021 where a leading employment lawyer answered questions from hundreds of solicitors and HR professionals who joined in over Zoom. I've not only picked my favourite episodes, but I've selected some of the best questions from those episodes. So, for example, next week, you've got extracts from Jodie Hill answering your questions on mental health in the workplace. We've also got Rebecca Tuck, King's Counsel, answering your questions on tribunal time limits. Darren Newman answering your questions about grievances. Tom Crotsford, King's Counsel, on whistleblowing. Saul Margo on performance dismissals and many others. And we're kicking off this week with Jude Shepherd, who's a barrister at 42 Bedford Row. Jude is talking about employment tribunal procedure. She's ranked as a leading junior in Chambers and Partners and the Legal 500. Her clients commend her for her cross-examination, her tactical skills and her down-to-earth approach. She also sits as a fee-paid employment judge in the employment tribunals in Scotland. Things you'll learn include, can a claimant speak to the press while the case is ongoing? Are covert phone recordings admissible? And what can you do if a witness isn't available for the hearing. Before we start, a big thank you to the two sponsors for this season, whose support for this podcast makes it possible for us to create, record, edit and host Employment Law Matters, and so makes it possible for you to discover more about all things employment and HR law related. So a big shout out and a huge thank you to Breeden Consulting and to Radar. You'll hear more about them later in the episode. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. First of all, something uh, that I get asked a lot, and I seem to change my mind every five minutes on this one. Can a claimant speak to the press when litigation is going on? Yes, they can. Uh, I suppose the more interesting question is whether it's advisable for them to do so. My experience is that it's rarely a good idea, given the potential pitfalls. I usually advise clients um, against it, if at all possible. You know, claimants will often think it's a good idea to try and exert pressure or, or think they'll get a lot of interest in their side of the story. But obviously, once you speak to a journalist, you, you then have no control over how uh, the story is portrayed in the media. So th- there's no rule against speaking to the press particular care needs to be taken about speaking to the press during the currency of an actual hearing, particularly a final hearing when evidence is being given. That's amply demonstrated by what happened to Miss Chidsoy in her claim against the BBC. Miss Chidsoy, who is a, was a journalist herself, 
was overheard discussing her case with a journalist during a comfort break, despite having been warned, as witnesses always are, before the break uh, by the judge that she shouldn't discuss her evidence with anybody, not just journalists, because she remained under oath. And unfortunately for her, she was overheard. BBC brought that to the tribunal's attention and applied for her claim to be struck out. And the tribunal acceded to that application, essentially uh, finding that she discussed what she'd been asked in cross-examination that morning with the journalist. And they effectively found that they no longer had, uh, that the trust in her was irreparably damaged and that a fair trial was no longer possible. So, you know, you've got to be very careful uh, about what happens during the course of a hearing. And the EAT found the tribunal were entirely uh, entitled to reach those conclusions. So there's a potentially high price to pay. I always say it's better to keep your powder dry until litigation is over. Jude, what about phone recordings? We often have this problem in tribunals. Can a phone recording be used even if one side didn't tell the other side at the time of the conversation that the call was being recorded? Yes, of course, this is something that comes up, uh, comes up a lot more nowadays because it's so easy to, uh, to make covert recordings. And um, the answer is probably yes. Tribunals do still take a dim view of covert recordings. It's not done, uh, really to record people without their knowledge. But the reality is that more often than not, they will allow them to be used. So there's no rule that says that evidence that's either been unlawfully or improperly obtained uh, is automatically excluded. There was a, a, a civil road traffic claim with the beautifully named Mustard and Flower and others where the question of covert recordings was considered. And in that case, the judge said that essentially what's required is that the tribunal or the court in that case considers the means that have been employed to obtain the evidence together with its relevance and probative value and the effect that admitting or not admitting it would have on the fairness of the litigation process. And the, the, the tribunal has to balance those factors and, uh, and consider with regard to the overriding objective whether to admit it or exclude it. And, you know, broadly, if it's really just a case of an employee having recorded a meeting with a manager or something of, along those lines, more often than not, that will be admitted. And um, the position's rather different if a party seeks to covertly record private deliberations. So you sometimes get this situation where somebody will leave their phone in their coat pocket when they're sent out of the room for a disciplinary panel to decide whether they should be dismissed or not. That is rather different because of the public policy considerations as to uh, an adjudicatory panel or body being able to speak freely. And so often you will have more success excluding that kind of evidence from a hearing, although it, it's often it will depend what's being said. So if, for example, during that recording, somebody says something is discriminatory or there is then clear evidence that there's something fishy going on, that will uh, potentially lead the tribunal to say that its relevance and probative value outweighs the public policy reasons for excluding it. You're watching Jude Shepherd, the head of the employment group at 42 Bedford Row, who's answering your questions on tribunal procedure. Uh, I'm going to turn to those questions in just a second. Uh, when Jude refers to rules during her answers, she is going to be referring, uh, for anybody who's not familiar with them, to Schedule 1 of the Employment Tribunal's Constitution and Rules of Procedure Regulations 2013, in which the majority of the tribunal rules are set out. Uh, Jude, the first question comes from Natalie White. Natalie asks, what's the most common mistake that employers make 
when responding to claims? Gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say that respond to the claim that is made. So often what you'll see in ET3s is that respondents don't stick to the point and that they will ramble on about things. You know, what the tribunal wants to see is a response to the claim. And often something that's uh, sometimes frustrating for me um, when acting for respondents is that respondents will sort of anticipate what a claimant might be trying to say or might want to claim and, and they'll plead to it even when it isn't pleaded. And, you know, on behalf of a respondent, you then get to a hearing where there's then a debate about what's pleaded on the claimant's case, you know, whether there's an indirect discrimination claim or something along those lines. Uh, And I'll merrily be saying, well, you know, this doesn't, it isn't on the face of the claim form, the claimant would have to amend, to which the judge then says, well, Miss Shepherd, your client's pleaded to it in your ET3, you know, which they've done as an abundance of caution, but actually, you know, you, you really don't need to do, you know, it's a bit like exams look at the question answer the question and stick to that point don't be too verbose because it might actually get you into into difficulties later down the line yeah that's that's a good point there's there's three others i come across quite a lot and i'm sure you do as well jude failing to take time limit points i think is quite a common problem employers have um failing to deal with the little claims so you might address the unfair dismissal but you'll forget about the holiday pay or the breach of contract claim and the biggest, biggest, biggest mistake that employers make is missing the 28-day time limit or forgetting to ask for an extension of time. Uh, and that can cause all sorts of problems. Do, do, do you have any others to add to that list? Because you, you answered the question, which is the most common. I just threw a few more in there. Yes. No, I mean, the, the, the time limit points is a good one. You know, you should sort of forensically look at every aspect of the claim and think, you know, where where is my line of attack here? And that that often isn't done. Uh, you know, you, you'll often get respondents often get hung up on other matters. But, you know, you should have a bit of a checklist of looking at, at sort of time limit points and any points that you can plead to. And, you know, and indeed, because particularly if you've got litigants in person, it won't always be obvious on the face of the claim form, the claims that are being made. So, for example, there might be a holiday pay claim just tucked away in, in the claim there in one line. Uh, you need to make sure that you've looked carefully through it before you before you plead your response. Breeden Consulting provides small and medium businesses with the breadth of HR support usually enjoyed by large corporates. So if you want practical and commercially focused HR support, or if you're an HR professional looking for an opportunity to capitalise on your experience by joining a great team, visit www.breedenconsulting, that's B-R-E-E-D-O-N, breedenconsulting.co.uk. The next question comes from Tony Evans, who says, if an employee is a repeat offender at bringing claims against their various employers, can you raise this at an employment tribunal? Yeah, this is a very interesting question because it is something that that comes up in a fair number of claims that I deal with that you will often find that a claimant um, has indeed brought claims before. You have to tread very carefully because, you know, a claimant may well say, well, it's not my fault that I've just had lots of really terrible previous employers and I'm entitled to bring claims. uh, And as long as I'm not a vexatious litigant, then what relevance can that possibly have? 
So you do need to be careful. Tribunals will not be quick to judge a claimant on previous litigation. And obviously there are rules about how it's very difficult to establish that a litigant is vexatious in the true meaning of the word. But that said, you know, if there are a lot of previous claims brought in a very similar fashion on sort of similar facts, and you think that the claim brought against your employer is indeed vexatious, then, you know, as long as you do it carefully, that may well be evidence that that might be helpful to you before the tribunal. Ed Jennison, how much detail should a respondent include in the ET3? I'm conscious it shouldn't read like a witness statement, although what's actually required? The EAT said something on this recently, didn't they, uh, Jude? Yeah, so it, it sh- you know, it, <laughs> pleadings should be concise. Uh, I have to say I'm a little bit guilty of uh, whenever I draft a, a response of, of possibly erring on including more rather than less. But it's true to say that it, it is a pleading, so it shouldn't be a witness statement. It shouldn't contain loads of evidence. It should, as I said earlier, you know, respond to the claim that's made uh, and, you know, and put forward the legal defence that you are making. So you shouldn't include a lot of evidence in it and it should be as clear and concise as possible, uh, essentially. But, you know, that it's a grey area because it is difficult, you know, when we're dealing with employment tribunal claims. The reality is, particularly if you get litigants in person uh, where, you know, points are, uh, you know, extensive points are raised in the claim, it's natural for a respondent to want to respond to those points. And so, you know, th- there's a there's a balance to be struck, I think. You don't want to be d- too concise uh, because you don't then want to be in the position of being told that you haven't pleaded a point later down the line. So, um, you know, yes, of, of course, being concise is important, but, uh, uh, you know, make sure that you've covered all of the relevant points that are in the claim. Melanie Bonus asks, how accommodating an employment tribunal judge is when a respondent is defending themselves? or acting with HR support when the knowledge of the employer or the HR professional will be far less than that of the solicitor or barrister for the claimant? You know, my experience is that employment judges are, you know, very accommodating of understanding that it's not just claimants who appear as litigants in person. And, you know, obviously, as a barrister, more often than not, my experience, um, certainly as a member of the bar, is that at least one party is represented. But of course, you know, that's not the majority of claims that tribunals are dealing with. A very large proportion of the claims that tribunals deal with are relatively small claims, for want of a better word, where, you know, both parties are unrepresented. And, you know, tribunal judges are well practiced at dealing with cases in those circumstances and helping both parties navigate their way through through the procedure and through the evidence and everything else. So, you know, I wouldn't be concerned, you know, that you're not going to get a fair hearing from an employment judge if you're unrepresented as a respondent, because you will. E. Ross asks, if a witness is on annual leave and not available to attend, can they, presumably meaning the, the party or the tribunal, enforce somebody's attendance? And if not, what happens with the ET dates? Yes, they can be 
uh, forced to attend. So you can apply for a witness order. I mean, obviously, you know, um, respondents where they've got to call employees to give evidence and it clashes with their annual leave, then you would hope that you would know about that at the point at which you're fixing the case for trial, you know, which so normally you'd be able to submit your dates to avoid. The difficulty is that if somebody later then books annual leave, having known that they were going to be a witness, or I suppose if you suddenly decide you need somebody as a witness who you hadn't anticipated before, this might come up, that really a tribunal will be not terribly sympathetic to taking, you know, a lengthy trial out of the list just to accommodate somebody's holiday to Tenerife. So it, that's a difficult one. Um, it probably wouldn't be grounds for a, an adjournment of the entire trial. And if your employee is objecting to it, yes, indeed, you could seek a witness order for them. But it's, it's a, that, that's a tricky one to navigate as an employer as opposed to a party. Radar is a specialist commercial and litigation law firm dedicated to helping businesses navigate their risk, including employment issues. Radar's legal expertise and innovative digital tools focus on educating businesses before problems happen. Book your free 30-minute employment and HR consultation today or subscribe to their monthly newsletter at Radar, that's R-R-A-D-A-R, radar.com slash employment. Almost all respondents will threaten a claimant with costs at some point. Not if I'm a barrister, they won't kneel. Um, they'll get told not to. And I suspect the same is the case with Jude, although she can answer for herself. Hiding behind without prejudice, save us to costs. Is there any way a claimant can argue this is unreasonable conduct in the carrying out of the proceedings? I mean, I, I would agree. I, you know, I would only ever advise my respondent clients to put a claimant on a, a cost warning if there were indeed good grounds to do so. And you were thinking further down the line that you would indeed make an application for costs rather than it just being an empty threat. But, you know, respondents who do make those empty threats and who do do it in an oppressive way, uh, which is something that you do have to be very careful of with cost warnings as a respondent, you know, if, if they cross that line, then there is the potential of arguing that it is unreasonable conduct. And I suppose it depends upon the impact that's, you know, that it has as to where that will take you. And, you know, I suppose it has to be a fairly oppressive approach and perhaps repeated uh, warnings for you then to make that point before the tribunal uh, in order for it to tip over into an unreasonable conduct is it's a fairly high bar. Um, but yes, it's not not impossible if you've got a particularly aggressive respondent to put them back in their box. Many of you, I think, will remember this, certainly many of the grey haired people like me. Um, there was once a regional employment judge based out of Bristol who developed a practice of uh, whenever a claimant wrote in, and all the claimant lawyers knew this, whenever a claimant wrote in and said, I've received a costs warning from the respondent, would call that respondent lawyer in front of him and say, prove to me why I shouldn't land you with unreasonable conduct costs for trying to bully the claimant. And it effectively got rid of the practice of doing that in Bristol, uh, which I think was a very, very smart move. I assume, um, Jude, you know exactly who I'm talking about. I do know exactly who you're talking about. And that particular regional judge, I think, has had a lasting impact on a number of uh, ways in which lawyers uh, conduct themselves on various issues. So um, a robust approach it was, but not necessarily a, a bad one. And uh, yes, it's uh, definitely had a lasting effect, I think.
Nick Hine has asked, if an interim relief application is granted, is there a good argument for an expedited hearing, bearing in mind the fact the ex-employer is continuing to pay salary? Yes, there is. And tribunals will often try to accommodate hearing the case as soon as possible as a consequence, but it doesn't always happen. And it sort of depends upon the complexity of the case and how quickly it can be gotten ready for trial. But um Yes, there definitely is an argument for that for for a, a respondent because obviously it is a you know an onerous thing to have to be paying salary, particularly in circumstances where regardless of what the outcome of the trial is, you know that that salary will not be recouped. Shari Kitley asks, "What's the probability of getting a claim struck out for continued non-compliance with orders?" How sympathetic are tribunals towards non-complying parties? I mean, you know, that's it's going to be very fact specific. So obviously it's a very draconian act to strike out for non-compliance of orders. But tribunals will do it if there is repeated non-compliance. So as a respondent, generally, you know, you probably want to do it in stages so there's no point going in very early and saying, well, you know, they've not complied with, you know, the order for disclosure. You know, I've tried to get them to disclose, but it's late. So please strike them out. That's probably not going to happen. But if they have repeatedly said that they won't comply and, you know, often I think that one, the best approach is to apply for an unless order, first of all ask the tribunal to make an unless order and then you are going to have a, a you know an easier job at persuading the tribunal that given that the party knew uh, what the potential consequences were of not complying that you may uh, you know have a better chance of, of striking out but it really will depend on the reasons for the non-compliance you know if they really are just not progressing their claim if they really just are ignoring the orders then yes there will come a point where the tribunal says enough is enough it's rarely, in my experience, that straightforward. Uh, there's usually some backstory behind non-compliance and them saying that they have complied or it's you that's not complied, something along those lines, and there's an argument to be had. That was Jude Shepherd from 42 Bedford Row. Join me next Tuesday, the 4th of April, when I'll be bringing you highlights from my recent webinar with Jodie Hill, where she answers questions on mental health in the workplace. Thank you for listening. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.